Welcome to our podcast series from the Computer Science Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. I'm Lori Glover, and I'm here today with Dr. Howard Trove, who is a principal research scientist here at CSAIL, as well as the director of the research initiative, Cybersecurity at CSAIL. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to focus on the area of cybersecurity? Uh, yeah, like much of my career, it was by yeah. accident. Um, I originally came here to MIT as a grad student to work on uh, computer systems, operating systems in particular, and got here just in time for the Multics project to be over. And so I gravitated into the Artificial Intelligence Lab, which was one of the places where there was a lot of systems work still going on. And many years later, I got recruited to go work at DARPA as a program manager, mainly in the area of AI and um, programming languages. And uh, after a year or so there, the offices were reorganized, and there was a new initiative that was going to be started in what they called information survivability, by which they meant a focus much more on resilience and uh, particularly on large-scale infrastructure. And uh, my office director called me up while I was away at the um, National AI conference and told me he wanted me to lead this initiative because no one else could figure out a line uh, of what it ought to be about. And I said to him, I remember this quite clearly, that you know, computer security had been one of the areas of CS that it always bored me silly. <laughs> and he said, well, that was exactly the reason why I was the right person to lead the effort. And so I got very engaged in uh, looking at the security problems that were emerging at that point. This was around 1996, I believe. And um, so the problems were nowhere near as severe as they are today, but they were beginning to emerge. And the idea of using a more or less AI approach of focusing on how systems could be adaptive on their own was sort of an appealing thing. And so that was when I first got involved. Uh, and then after being involved in several research projects as a performer after I left DARPA, it began to occur to me that uh, although this line on resilience was an important part of the puzzle, that you really couldn't do it well unless you had at least some part of the system that was really inherently secure. And so I became increasingly interested in applying my old background in computer architecture and operating systems to see if we could do things right enough so that we had some solid ground to stand on. And because of that, I went back to DARPA in 2010 with the intent of doing uh, just that. And um, started the CRASH program, which was focused both on inherent security and resilience, uh, focused mainly on individual machines. And then the MRC program, which was focused on how to apply the same lessons to large-scale infrastructure. And then when I came back here, I started the initiative um, after a year as associate director of the lab. Great. So what do you see are the biggest challenges today in cybersecurity? Well, it starts with the fact that we have a huge legacy of system software and hardware designs, for that matter, that are really all rooted in the early 1970s and in an era when we didn't have many computer resources and we didn't have much computer crime and things weren't connected. And so these were all rational designs for their time. But in today's environment, when everything's connected, there's a lot of computer crime. There's the potential for transnational use of uh, cyber techniques as a means of you know, affecting either terrorism or international relations, uh, plus this huge amount of cybercrime going on. Um, 
it seems to me that the problem is we really need to fundamentally change the basic architectures of our system so that they're inherently secure. Uh, but we have a huge legacy of software, and so the prospect of rewriting millions and millions of lines of code is not very appealing. Mm -hmm. But we sort of need to do it. <laughs> do you think that moving to something that's inherently secure or security by design is possible in the next five years, ten years? Yeah, well, what we're exploring now is the use of some modifications in hardware designs that provide the tools to allow us to take existing code and then impose policies on it. These are basic level policies like maintaining memory safety and type safety, access controls and the like, but doing it from the hardware up so that it's uniformly enforced. So I think it's possible to have most of what we want, that is reasonably good security by default, and then uh, not having to rewrite all of those lines of code. We may have to rewrite some of them because the languages we write system software in, primarily the C programming language, is really just a mess and it's very hard to understand what the intent of the programmers actually were because it allows them to express that intent in somewhat bizarre ways. So some, some parts of the system may need to be rewritten, but um, there's been some work on this and it looks like that's a relatively small part, way under 10%. Oh, great. Well, we've often uh, talked at conferences and things where you've referred to a chart where there are lines of code for a malicious deed that's a relative constant, but mm -hmm. to combat that, it's exponentially greater. Yeah, so that chart mainly comes from a colleague of mine at DARPA uh, who goes by the name of Mudge, really. His, na his real name is Peter Zyko, um, and, but he's no much better as Mudge. And um, he looked at a very large collection he had of uh, various cyber exploits uh, and that were labeled by time. And that seemed to hold up relatively well at an average of about 125 lines of code. Mm. Uh, and then if you look at the defensive systems, these are things like you know antivirus, uh, intrusion detection systems, firewalls, unified threat management systems, and all the rest of this. Mm -hmm. um, those tend to add up to millions and millions of lines of code because the, the largest of these systems are, in fact, small operating systems. And um, so they approach big operating systems and lines of code. Now, there is some quibbling about these numbers, but the key thing is that, um, first of all, even when you look at a major attack like the Stuxnet attack, mm -hmm. which is believed to have been done by the U.S. and possibly Israeli government, uh, in attacking the Iranian centrifuge systems. That was a very large attack, but it really consists of a series of individual exploits that help penetrate and move through an infrastructure. And if you look at each of those attacks, they're on the same order of magnitude, you know, 100 to a few hundred lines of code. Um, so the whole thing may be much bigger, but each of the individual exploits was still on that scale. The, the other thing to note is that when you're talking about six orders of magnitude difference, quibbling over a factor of two or three doesn't really matter. So even if the attacking code has gotten somewhat larger over time, it hasn't gotten larger anywhere near the size that defensive systems have. So presently, um, you are also the director of cybersecurity at CSAIL, the research initiative focused on mm -hmm. technical aspects of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, your work within that? Yeah, sure. So this is a partnership between various researchers at CSAIL, about a dozen or so, and 
um, several companies that are sponsoring the research and working with us. The idea is to try to bring together this long-term technical outlet to outview, over outlook that CCL has um, together with the practical experience that the companies have and to try to balance the two and enrich one another. Um, within the CCL work, there's work at all kinds of levels, both at hardware, system software, programming language, um, formal methods, tools that can detect bugs in existing code through deep analysis, um, and even some work on redoing operating system components in a way that's provably correct. Um, and what the partners bring to this is their experience in finance, um, defense systems, uh, commercial aircraft, which is Boeing, and um, uh, BP, which is in the oil services business. Mm -hmm. And your work presently working with industrial control systems? Yeah, this is still fairly preliminary work. There's a small effort that's being sponsored by the initiative, one of three seedling efforts we're sponsoring. And the idea is to look at industrial control systems because they're somewhat different than classical computing systems. Uh, the controllers within these are typically built these days on relatively conventional real-time operating systems and on mainstream hardware, uh, typically ARM or MIPS hardware. And, um, but there's unique problems in the area because these are all sensor systems, sensor-based systems that have effects in the real world. And so there are attacks in this domain that don't exist in conventional computing. Mm. One of those is distorting the sensor data. So if imagine just a simple thermostat, for example. If the thermostat is really reading low, which would cause you to put more heat in, but it's modified by an attacker to read high, then you would do the exact opposite of what you really need to do. Mm -hmm. And notice that the actual computer here, the controller, was never attacked. This is typically done as a man-in-the-middle network type of attack. And similarly, if the attacker can do the same thing to the control signals that the controller is sending out, that also will make the system do the wrong thing, even though there's no conventional attack on the conventional computing in the controller. Now, there's also one other style of attack, which is simply to affect the timing. And this could be done by making the network noisier or by penetrating the controller and running parasitic tasks that slow it down. And the reason this matters is that this is a real-time system and you have to meet deadlines. And so if you can affect the timing, you can again make the controller not work correctly. Okay. Then on top of that, there are the classic attacks on the controller, um, which these days are relatively large systems, including many of the standard software um, utilities that people expect. Uh, this is very much like your printer has a web server in it so you can manage it. Uh, well, so do the controllers these days. And so there's this much wider attack service to, due to all of this conventional software that's running there. So what we're trying to do is to figure out ways of dealing with each of these problems. Uh, how can you detect sensor spoofing? How can you detect that the effectors are getting the wrong data? And finally, how do you protect the controller itself? And some of those would be by making them more inherently secure. And some of this is done by running in parallel with the actual system, more abstract models of them to tell you what the system ought to be doing and then comparing it to what it is doing. Okay. 
So how these sensors and these interconnected sensors think about the Internet of Things. Yeah, right. So I was uh, just gone for a week for a trip in China where I talked about this a lot because it seems to be a very popular topic both there and in Taiwan where I also was. And um, the Internet of Things is just a way of thinking about systems of this kind where you have sensor data being dealt with in real time conveyed over the network to devices which have IP addresses, mm -hmm. um, but also in which the sensor data is being stored in a cloud, for example, for analytics and uh, to understand deeper patterns. So exactly the problems I mentioned in industrial control exist here. That is to say, interfering with the sensor data, interfering with the signals to the effectors, uh, penetrating the actual processing units. All of these can affect Internet of Things type systems. Now, in some of these cases, this can be a bit fanciful. So uh, in my plane ride over, I was doing a little bit of research and found examples of attacks on internet-connected Barbie dolls. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, the a vulnerability in a Samsung refrigerator that allows the attacker to steal your Gmail credentials. Oh, wow. um, and finally, a uniquely American experience, I'm sure, um, in Wi-Fi-enabled sniper scope on a high-powered rifle that can be hacked. Oh, wow. So uh, these are the kinds of things. I mean, I don't think any of these, with the exception maybe of the rifle, are really very serious. But they begin to show what might happen as we rush into this, you know, unified, large-scale, connected device world that we call the Internet of Things. Now, some of this is going to be in home automation. So that's why, you know, things like your interconnected Barbie doll, for example, <laughs> or the refrigerator, um, which, you know, at least personally, I'm, I'm not convinced these things are going to be big market successes anyway. Um, but imagine industrial systems that are connected in this way. Um, so this is a big trend. It's in the U.S. referred to as the manufacturing internet of things. In Europe, it tends to run more under the buzzword of manufacturing 4.0. Um, but imagine those kinds of systems where an attacker now might be able to really affect the production systems of large companies or um, in a smart city context where you might be managing traffic or smart grid systems where we're managing electricity. All of these are different instances of Internet of Things types of environments. And all of them have the possibility of really serious consequences on very large scale. Uh, when you think about this, one question is, well, who would be interested in attacking these things? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the answers are, well, terrorists potentially, uh, nation states in times of conflict. But also, um, there's an emerging wave of ransomware going on. Uh, I was told in China it's more common there than it is here even. Uh, but these are systems in which an attacker... The most common version we're seeing is an attacker breaks into your personal machine, encrypts all your files, and holds you up for money to pay for the uh. encryption key. Uh, the version of this that's of worry in an Internet of Things environment is an attacker does a small-scale demonstration of the ability to disrupt one of these pervasive systems and then demands huge ransom to not do a large-scale attack. Mm -hmm. And then we're in the, you know, the usual situation of do you pay the ransom, which only incurs more of the same, or do you call the bluff and then incur the actual attack? Exactly. So these are not threats we're facing yet today, but they're looming on the horizon. 
and are, again, concerned for rushing into a widespread deployment of these technologies until we've really thought through the security implications. Well, that is very, very good advice, and you've given us lots to think about. Thank you so much for your sure. time today. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.